afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Grox. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on this week's show, tickling, ovary, and bird brains. In addition, we're joined by Mr. Christy Campbell, who will talk about how wine was saved for the world. Also, we'll find out where sand comes from. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week, coming right up here on Berkeley Grocks. Welcome back to Frank the Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Pretty good, pretty good, but uh, a little bit disturbed, actually. And why's that? I found out that one of our former guests has turned Republican. Oh dear, who's that? Mary Carey. <laughs> actually, that wouldn't surprise me. I guess I saw the way that she dressed, and she was in the Stars and Stripes. Uh-huh. Although not completely covering all the Stars and Stripes on her body. <laughs> God bless America. <laughs> so why have she turned Republican, and how did you find this out? It's actually the news, and there's actually a John Stewart parody of this. What was the parody? She and this Republican strategist are talking about how their values are uh, in line with the Republican Party. Okay. <laughs> Whatever they are, I guess. Well, I guess it's freedom of expression, right? Yes. And I thought Republicans were trying to quash that. Well, the irony, I guess. <laughs> That's good news, I guess, for all those Mary Carey fans out there who wish she was governor right now. And she would have put video cameras in every room, right? Well, at least in the governor's mansion. I'm sure the, uh, the governor's foyer has never seen that kind of action, or would have. Right. Here's a question. Are you ticklish, Charles? Well, it depends what spot you hit me in. <laughs> Usually behind the eyes. Have you tried tickling yourself before? I have, with very little success. Yes. In fact, for most people, if they try to tickle themselves, they won't feel very much of anything. Actually, a recent study confirms that somehow the brain is always anticipating sensations. So if you're touching yourself, then supposedly you're anticipating sensation, and that's why you wouldn't get such a ticklish response. Oh, I see. Well, you should try it with the other hand. It feels like someone else is doing it. Oh, the other hand. (laughs) Some lotion helps, too. (laughs) Not sure what part of the body you want me to touch. I don't know. Lubrication. So anyways, this was work carried out by Paul Bayes at the uh, Institute of Neurology at University College London, and basically what they were trying trying to show us they're trying to apply a stimulus to the left hand by tapping initiated from the right hand and what they do is they tap some sort of button and then the stimulus would go to the left hand and when there were delays Mm. in the stimuli it turns out that the uh, subject felt a greater sensation i see but so this is their right hand tapping a button right and that causes some other machine to like stimulate their left hand right if there's a delay Uh. in that stimulation then they feel it more but if there's no delay then they Uh. hardly notice it okay so there's sort of a time correlation effect that needs to happen right and what he's suggesting that our brain always senses things slightly a tenth of a second later than it does and so it's already anticipating Mm. the sensation but if it's more than that then most likely we would feel a greater response well i guess the other possibility is you could just like numb half your body use that to uh, stimulate the other side (laughs) so you won't know what's gonna happen (laughs) right good stuff i guess just offering suggestions for better living that's all (laughs) check it out in the recent journal of current biology Okay, Frank, so do you always go south for the winter? Yeah, I guess so. I consider L.A. to be south from here. I, I don't consider L.A. to be south of anywhere. It's I think a state it's, of mind, right? Yes, well, it's it's sort of a disease state of mind for a lot of people out there. No offense to all of our L.A. listeners. I'm not sure if L.A. listeners actually listen to science. Well, I did grow up in L.A. Uh, well, the O.C., right? Oh, yes. They definitely don't listen to science out there. <laughs> 
it defies science. Well, so it turns out that if you're not migrating south, that is, if you're a bird, apparently you are a little bit smarter and have a bigger brain. Well, maybe it was wise of me not to、uh, go to LA last winter. <laughs> Apparently, so it turns out a study published recently in the Proceedings of the Royal Society has just shown that in the blackbird Turdus merulia and the bullfinch have been shown that they basically have two different types of、uh, species. One group which will migrate south for the winter,、mm-hmm. and the other which will stick around during the winter and foraging in very clever and innovative ways, sticks and such to forage underneath the snow. Wow! So they just don't want to <laughs> run away. Well, it looks like that they've sort of ad- adapted to evolving a different strategy for surviving the winter. And、uh, the rationale here is apparently that the brain takes up a lot of energy. For For food, right. So birds that had to migrate away had a trade-off. They said, "Well, we'll give up brain tissue and just have a very simple life." And the ones that were smarter stuck around and endured the pain of winter. I wonder what this is about our president's strategy for the war, though. Yeah, I'm not sure what size brain <laughs> birds are running the、uh, country. <laughs> Bird brain, definitely. But <laughs> so this was actually interesting work. It was work done by Daniel Sol of the Independent University of Barcelona in Spain. So Charles, did you see Fight Club? Yes. And the first rule of、uh, watching that is that I can't talk about it. So what did you think about those guys going picking up on the human tissue and making soap out of it? <laughs> I guess that is a way of actually creating soap, yeah. But it turns out you can actually pick out parts from animals and create brand new tissue. Just general <coughs> tissue, elastin. Okay, so you can create a kidney from elastin. Possibly, some scientists using pigs have shown that elastin can act as a scaffold for building up new、uh, blood vessels and other tissues. And they've demonstrated that when they created this graft using elastin and then patching it over an incision in some pigs, it healed completely to such an extent that they could not find the original wound. I see, but it's not the elastin itself that's、uh, becoming the tissue. It's just basically providing a structure. A so it's not like a stem cell, which is all of a sudden changing into. No, I guess. This shows a really good promise in terms of healing certain body injuries, especially the ones where there's extensive bleeding and at extremities where、uh, damage occurs the most. And in fact, the United States Army is very interested in this, since it turns out one of the leading causes of death is from people dying from loss of blood. Army is interested in everything having to do with <laughs> <laughs> patching up soldiers, especially if there's wars going on. <laughs> this is really interesting work. It was carried out by Dr. Ken Gregory at Oregon Medical Laser Center in Portland. Right, and what's your favorite frozen food? Since they're not very fresh, I would just say ice cream. That's what Forrest Gump got to eat after he got shot in the buttocks. Oh yeah. Well, it turns out that you can also freeze ovaries now. Freeze ovaries? No thanks to Clarence Birdseye, but they're not gonna get mine though. <laughs> you gotta guard yours with particular care. Where are your ovaries, by the way? I don't know. It's a mystery to me. Well, it's a mystery to most anatomists too, I think. <laughs> Um, anyway, so it turns out though that group researchers have created a procedure where patients who are about to go undergo chemotherapy can freeze their ovaries and then have them re-transplanted、uh, back in so that they can conceive a child afterwards. Oh, so do your ovaries get damaged during chemotherapy? A lot of tissues, of course, get damaged, and apparently the ovaries are one of those.、Oh. Really, really, I guess they're very sensitive to the drugs, which makes sense because this is an area where there's a lot of cell turnover,、uh, right, and a lot of DNA activity, going right,、on. right, which is what most of these drugs target, right, right. This is quite fascinating because it suggests now that if you're about to undergo chemotherapy, you can just bank your ovaries and then put it back out and then conceive a child. And this was actually shown recently. Dror Mero and Jeshua Dor of the the Chaim Sheba Medical Center in Tel Hashomer, Israel, show that there was a woman who basically gave birth after using this procedure. 
So is this useful only for childbearing women or also for elderly lady? I mean, the ovary is a hormone-producing center, and probably mm. you want to keep that active as well, right? Well, that might be interesting. Like, freeze one of your ovaries early in life and then <laughs> bring it on after menopause. Oh, yeah. We should patent that idea and start going in business. <laughs> Bank your ovaries with us here at Grox. If you're interested in reading about this, published in the recent edition of the New England Journal of Medicine. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grox here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, Mr. Christy Campbell will join us to discuss how wine was saved for the world. So stay tuned. to Berkeley Rocks here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, the time was the mid-1860s, and the mystery was grapevines in France were suddenly beginning to wither and die. And soon, within a few years, this plague would threaten vineyards across Europe and almost destroy the entire wine industry. Well, what was causing this plague, and what could be done to stop it? Join us today on Berkeley Rocks to tell us about this remarkable story is Mr. Christy Campbell. Mr. Campbell is a former writer and journalist for the Sunday Telegraph, whose new book, The Botanist and the Vintner, How Wine Was Saved for the World, chronicles the efforts to save European vineyards from this mysterious plague. Mr. Campbell, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Rocks. Great to be here. Uh, well, it's certainly a pleasure to have you on the program, and you've certainly written a very fascinating book, The Botanist and the Vintner. I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about the situation that occurred in the mid-1860s. Yes, I'm not a, I'll put my cards on the table straight away. I'm not a life scientist. I'm not a wine expert. I certainly am not a wine snob. What I am is a journalist and writer who has always been fascinated by history and by conflict. And I followed the wars around the world, modern wars. And by accident, almost by accident, I stumbled across a story about a war against an insect. Mm. Not a war against nature, because nature came to the redeem itself in the end. And it's set in the 1860s, and begins in the 1860s rather, and, and, and goes on and begins in France, and it's the tale of a man-made biological catastrophe, 
But why it is so poignant and so reverberates in the memory of many people is because it had affected wine. If it was trees or wheat or soya, it would not have had the same impact. But it was about the story of a little aphid native to North America, a little parasitic aphid that by accident crossed the Atlantic and got loose in the vineyards of France, where the species of vine, rather, Vitis vinifera, the, the old European wines, had no resistance mm. to the parasite, which had evolved over many millennia in the deserts and the great southwest of America. And by this tiny little accident, I tracked it down. I found Ground Zero, where the first outbreak was. It spread like an expanding spot of oil in a pool across France. It took 30 years. Mm. It reached out over Europe, reached as far as the Crimea in Russia, spread on ships to New Zealand, to Australia, came round in a circle back to California, mm and wiped out the wine industry. It hmm. destroyed half of France. It, it sent many scores of thousands heading for emigrant ships to Algeria, to Argentina, to Chile. Nobody starved. You can't starve for lack of wine, but it was a hmm. biological and economic catastrophe hmm. and affected France mortally, I would say. And so what was done to look at this problem and combat it? Well, it's down to scientists, isn't it? Right, yeah. Yes, okay. And we're in the 1860s. And the, I, in my ignorance, probably had more knowledge than the greatest uh, today, had more knowledge than, say, because the scientific brains of the time. Mm. Darwin had just published Origin of Species. Mm. Mendel was monkeying around with hereditary. Pasteur was proclaiming germs was something to do with disease. Mm. But nobody really knew. But they, they worked empirically. They looked at what they had in front of them. And in the southeast of France, a particular scientist, uh, Jules Emile Planchon, the botanist of the story, uh, self-taught. He began as, a, as a, an apprentice to a pharmacist who worked out that it was, it was an insect doing this. And what was curious was when they they dug up these dying vines, they could find no cause, just rough, just corrupted roots because the insect had moved on, had gone off to find fresh fields. But Ponchon realized, and, and, and there was magic bullets of, of realization, the plague must somehow have come from America. And if it had done, that's where redemption lay. And indeed, that's where the story next goes. Indeed. And so he then travels and meets an interesting entomologist. Yeah. He does. He yeah. goes, he gets on his steamship across the Atlantic and meets Charles Valentine Riley yeah. in Missouri. And he's the I'm pleased to say he's a London like me, born in London. But he's a good American boy and is one of the founding fathers of American entomology revered in, the, in that community. And Planchon and he work it out together that if the original infestation had come from the United States, mm. from America, let's, let's say America because it's millions of years old, the fix to it would also have to come from America. And that was the remarkable, remarkable discovery. And when then we get into the whole biology of the vine itself, not mm. the insect. The insect mm. burrows away, munching away happily. It's mm. not about the insect anymore. It's about the vine. Mm. It's about the plant. And what they discover is quite remarkable, I would say, for the world. I see. And so what was it about like, the, the vines that they discovered? Is that was so well, okay, yeah. there are these vines yeah. growing uh, as they, happily in North America, as they had done for 60 million years. Yeah. Different species. It's like lions and tigers, if you like. You know, the American vines are lions, the European vines are tigers. You cannot hybridize them successfully. If so, it wouldn't, the wine would be useless anyway. But what they had was roots growing in the ground which could resist the aphid. They were immune to its predations. So what the French did was to ship literally millions and millions of American vines across the Atlantic and plant them in the soil of France and let them grow and see what happened. And they duly came to produce fruit and wine was made. There was one big problem. The wine was disgusting. <laughs> And how do they combat that? Well, there's another trick you can do. It's, it's a tricksy thing. Another, new, not a, same generation, but botanists this time. Planchon is the, the guy who's discovered the aphid. And then another lot come along of, you know them, pince-nez, spectacles, big beards, yeah. all called Pierre or Louis or whatever, you know, good guys. And they realize that if you chop a vine in half, stick a European vinifera species on the top, splice it to the American one. You've got a, not a hybrid plant, you've got a chimera, kind of, mm. you know, kind of a strange beast, which is half one thing, half the other, but it works. Mm. And this was the trick. If you stick that root in, Europe, in the soil, it will resist the aphid, but the 
graft growing above will be as noble and as splendid and produce grapes as beautiful as that which went before. Nobody believed them. Mm. It was a tremendous effort of, of, of propaganda and fighting prejudice all the way to persuade Frenchmen to have American roots on their vines. No, no, they said, no. And it took uh, the government banned the import of American vines. There was great snobbery in Paris. The, the, the great grand vineyard owners of Bordeaux and Burgundy would not, not have these things under any circumstances, these vile American intruders. But in the end... They were shown to work, and empirical science mm -hmm. prevailed, and the grafted vine, imagine this, this strange thing, half and half, was accepted all over France, spread across the world, and is today how American vine is, wine is made. Mm -hmm. California, the wine you make here, in Oregon, and Washington, where I've been, is all made on grafted vines, made on this principle, discovered in backyards and in little farms mm -hmm. in France all those years ago. And without that technique, wine would be either like the dodo, it would be gone, or made in tiny little places and beyond anybody's price. Hmm. It's, it's fascinating. And even there was a reward offered for the solution to this problem. And this yet did not get a reward for that. Ain't it great? When yeah. governments have a problem, always, <laughs> or always offer a reward. And this yeah. is very interesting stuff because it's the beginning of popular science yeah. big time in right. the public imagination. The Scientific American is publishing. They do, they, the Scientific American journalists enter for this prize. They offer to send horse dung across the Atlantic. <laughs> it's an article in, in the paper. And it attracts cranks and maniacs and pragmatic people and big science, well, from all over the world, and with ma amazingly weird solutions. Yeah. There's snow, there's ash from Pompeii, slugs, ice, steam, <laughs> noise machines, anything to get make the insect go away right. but none work and the prize was never awarded and it's still in the vaults of the Bank de France mm. and perhaps I should make perhaps we should both make a bid for it actually indeed I think so it's interesting I mean in fact that sort of the empirical science actually took place you, you mentioned in fact that this was the time before even the germ theory was yep. recognized exactly so, I mean Pasteur yeah. uh, is a great hero for, uh, for many people he worked out the germ theory of mm. disease from looking at wine it was what wine is what bacteria does to grape juice mm -hmm. and that turns into wine fermentation so he studied that and thought hmm this is interesting what else does it do I'm curious, since this disease actually came full circle more recently in California vineyards, it's how, back, yes. and it's had a different take on how to approach the solution to this. Well, I would defer to your colleagues at UC <laughs> Davis, which is the world center of phenological right. science, without any doubt. I mean, it, it, Davis wants to be and sets its stall out to be yeah. the center of excellence in the world. Mm -hmm. Its great rival is in Montpellier in France, yeah. the, their wine college, which is where the phylloxera outbreak began, and they revere mm -hmm. their scientists there doing it up. Yes, I mean, the latest research from Davis is fascinating. There is what they call a new biotype, which is a very variation on phylloxera, which has found a way through the defenses of American rootstock. Rootstock typically is hybridized. It's made artificially from half anifera, half American species, and famously so, the one that Davis recommended in the 1960s and 70s, which is a rootstock called AXR1, half rupestre. I'm being technical, I, mean, I know this now because I've read about it. Half rupestre, half anifera, was found to be compromised, and billions of dollars worth of vineyards were rooted up and burned. Right. Now, we look at big issues here because phylloxera will never go away. Mm -hmm. It's always there whether, where there are vines are growing. The latest Davis research again shows it may not be the attack of the phylloxera itself that does the damage. Mm -hmm. it, it's the physical stuff it does with its horrible little beak sucking away for nutrients and its pathogens and fungi in the soil which do the damage. And there is wide-scale research going on on GM vines, wherever vines, Australia, Israel, mm -hmm. here. Although it's damped down here, a lot in the 90s, but people are not so keen to talk about it anymore, as you can imagine, because wine is not uh, cattle food. It's the most right. exquisite, complicated thing. Dependent on very unique conditions. And tremendous right. human impact. It's, yeah. it's one of those philosophical questions. Well, actually, I asked somebody the other day, what is the most inspiring expression of mankind's interaction with the plant kingdom? Mm -hmm man and plants. And somebody said, oh, gardens. Somebody said, 
Carpentry. I said, oh, no, not carpentry. Come on. Cupboards? Then I said, wine. And they said, oh, yes, it must be that. That's what we do. That's the most subtle way we can work with the plant kingdom. Indeed. I'm curious, actually, how you became interested in this story, since, as you mentioned, came to it about as worked as a war correspondent. Mm-hmm. Well, war is about technology and stupidity. <laughs> That's the story. Okay. And this story is about technology and stupidity, mm. except the enemy is not the Russians or the Germans mm. or the French or you know, the Iraqis or whoever it may be. It's an insect. And it needed a commonality of human purpose to steer through the incompetence, the ignorance, the prejudice to get a result in the end, which, which happened. And that made it so fascinating for me as an outsider yeah. to, to big science. How is it tracking down this story as opposed to uh, tracking down war stories? Still? Well, quieter, uh, but as interesting because it was a lot of archival work in libraries, uh-huh. 19th century letters, diaries, documents, uh-huh. especially in several libraries. I would recommend anybody out there who's listening who likes this stuff, go to Kew in London, Royal Botanic Gardens, uh-huh. wonderful library there. Go to Davis, best phylloxera li- best uh, wine library in the world, and the University of Montpellier in uh-huh. France, which is super. They're a bit slow on the uptake, <laughs> but they're terrific when they, when they get there. Hopefully your research also mm. allowed you to taste some fine wines as well. That's right. <laughs> uh, well, it does look like we are slightly out of time, but Dr. Campbell, I do want to thank you very much for joining us today on Breaking Rocks and discussing this very fascinating story. Great to be here. And you were just listening to Mr. Christy Campbell discussing his book, The Botanist and the Vintner, How Wine Was Saved for the World. You're listening to Berkeley Grox here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next is the Grokatron 5000 and the answer to last week's question of the week. So stay tuned.
Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks here on 90.7 FM KLX. Well, Mr. Krista Campbell, author of The Botanist and the Vintner, How Wine Was Safe for the World, has graciously decided to stick around and play our game, the Grokatron 5000. Mm. The Grokatron 5000 is, of course, our supercomputer, which was formerly known as Deep Blue. And now the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic today, what kind of wine would they be? So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know, if they were a wine, what kind of wine would they be? Mr. Campbell, are you ready to play your game, the Grokatron 5000? Let's go. Person number one, what kind of wine would they be? Martha Stewart. Goodness me. We know about Martha in England for various reasons, not, not the good reasons. We know a little bit about her. And she, well, she's been inside, hasn't she? She's been in a cellar for a little while. Yes. I would say a reedy white with an undertone of strawberries. Okay. <laughs> All right. And number two, the great physicist Albert Einstein. Ah, well, full-bodied, red, fuzzy at the edges. <laughs> number three, the California winemaker Robert Mondavi. Oh, Robert Mondavi, goodness me. Pinot Noir. <laughs> <laughs> age very well, let's put it All right, He's aged very well indeed. <laughs> okay. No, I can't remember. this sideways. What's the one they all run away from? It's Pinot Noir, isn't it? Yeah. But Mr. Mondavi's endowments are, the, are good to me, so he's aged very well. Indeed. <laughs> all right. Very Plenty good. more life in that one. <laughs> Uh, number four, the king of pop, Michael Jackson. Oh, Michael Jackson. Is he a wine at all? Perhaps he's just a uh, <laughs> Buck's fizz. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> all right. And number five, the president of the United States, George Bush. George W. Bush. Well, he doesn't drink, of course, does he? Yeah, so let's say, what's, what, is there an, a non-alcoholic wine? In the There's a one called Iceberg, yeah. which is uh, non-alcoholic. It's crisp, a little bit fruity, and you don't want too much of it. <laughs> Yes, well, unfortunately, I think we had an extra four years here. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, Mr. Campbell, I do want to thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grocks, uh, discussing your book, The Botanist and the Vintner, How Wine Was Safe for the World, and, of course, playing our game, The Grokatron 5000. It was great fun. And I'm um, Forrest with the answer to this week's question of the week. I like sand. Sand is warm and it's soothing during the summertime. And you know where it comes from? It's rocks, mostly made of quartz, which have broken up into little tiny particles. And that's what sand is. Okay, thank you very much, Dev. It was very, very interesting, your very interesting call. But here I am right now, and I'm trying to make the don't taste so good if you don't add curry powder. But you should not also add alkanes. Well, what are these crazy alkanes that everybody keeps talking about? Well, if you know the answer or think you know the answer, email us here at grogsa.mail.com. You're not going to win anything, but your curry just might taste a little more spicy. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.